Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Dominic, and I'm Emily Friedlander, and welcome to season two of The Culture Journalist, and congrats to you all for surviving 2020. We know we've been away for a little bit, hard at work putting this season together, and we just wanted to say a quick thank you for tuning into this episode, and an extra special thanks to those of you who have supported this podcast in some way along the way. It feels so good to be here again. The conversations we have on this podcast are always so cathartic for me during this crazy time, and we're excited to keep digging into the nitty gritty of how the things we care most about, culture, counterculture, and the media, have changed, might change in the future, and are changing right now as we ventured into the year ahead. So we're kicking off the season today talking about something very near and dear to our hearts, counterculture. What it is, what it means, and whether it can even exist at a time when pretty much every social interaction we have takes place on the internet for everyone to see. It's really a far cry from the underground and outsider spaces that incubated subcultures like beats, punk, and hip-hop. So think about it. Counterculture is a rejection of the status quo, right? So that makes kind of the whole thing get even more complicated when you consider the fact that one of the loci of power that we might otherwise be rebelling against is big tech and social media itself, which is why we're really excited to welcome this week's guest to the show, who wrote an extremely thought-provoking article on just this very subject. And without further ado, welcome back to The Culture Journalist. To be truly countercultural today, in a time of tech hegemony, one has to, above all, betray the platform, which may come in the form of betraying or divesting from your public online self. That's a line from a piece on Document Journal called The Internet Didn't Kill Counterculture, You Just Won't Find It on Instagram. It was written by our guest today, Caroline or Carly Busta. She's a Berlin-based writer and editor and founder of the media aggregator and podcast New Models. Carly, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Emily and Andrea, for having me. So tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this piece. Okay, so this summer, my partner, Julian, in Little Internet, in Life and in New Models, we were in Turkey and on a really serene setting, we get this email from the writer, Natasha Stagg, who is a friend of ours also, and was just asking our thoughts on counterculture on the internet. Like, does that work? Does it break down? What do you think? Is it possible? What does it look like? And we very leisurely are like, you know, in a summer mode and we're writing back like, I, yeah, I guess so, because BLM maybe was countercultural. So, and that was organized by the internet. But the more we thought about it, the more complex that question got. A few months later, I got an email from Document saying, hey, do you want to write about counterculture on the internet? Natasha suggested you had some thoughts. She's too busy right now. Do you want to do it? And I was like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> that is such a huge question. No, I kind of don't. But <laughs> at the same time, <laughs> it feels very urgent. And I do have a lot of ideas on it. So 
then several weeks later and many, many thoughts later, I had way too many words, which I gave over to the document editors, Camille Soji Pecha, who was wonderful, who helped me sort through them. And I have to say, I feel like I was channeling ideas that a lot of us like I'm sure yourselves who work in the culture sector have been grappling with, I mean, not even just this past year, maybe more intensely this past year, but like really since like web two, since Twitter was invented. And yeah, so that's how that piece came to be. Right. And it's, it, what's really interesting about it is just how it, it is tackling this very notion of like, how can something be truly countercultural or can something be truly countercultural when it is inherently tied to and lives on the kind of unholy matrimony we have today of big tech and capitalism. Absolutely. What experiences helped form your personal understanding of counterculture? Like, what did you originally understand that term to mean? Like, what sort of images or figures kind of came to mind when you'd hear it? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I have a sort of three-pronged response to this counterculture and three different registers. The first is that idea that most kids probably form of like Beats, Jack Kerouac, Woodstock. I don't know. There's almost like an emoji version of counterculture. It's supposed to be like resisting corporate culture in like a very visible, identifiable way. A second register is this idea that Gramsci put forward that is very rooted in class and resisting the bourgeois class, which sets the norms that have become sort of invisible. So a status quo that you can't resist because you can't see the edges of it. You just assume this is the way things should be. And there are a lot of really wonderful scholars out there who've thought deeply about this and about neo counter hegemony and I suggest you go read them. I'm not a scholar of it, but uh, I do think that's a very rich place to look for this. Uh, and then the third is just a, a personal feeling. I, I did not grow up counter in a countercultural way. I like experienced uh, upward mobility through the 80s and 90s. My parents came from working class families who came from Eastern Europe. They had a uh, success uh, until the 90s kind of exploded in corporate mergers and alcoholism and a lot of trauma and sadness. And then I think with my extended family in the Midwest with decline, and uh, I had a lot of anger towards that hegemony. It's funny, actually, for document, they asked to submit a childhood picture of yourself where you're like, countercultural. And I'm like, I don't think I even have any. I wasn't like cool that way. (laughs) You know, but maybe that's also telling, right? Because counterculture has become somehow synonymous with this idea of cool, this valuable idea of cool. With with an aesthetic. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the aesthetic of it. So yeah, but I mean, I wonder, like, what were your ideas of counterculture? I mean, maybe earlier and then more recently. It's tricky to think about. I think a lot of what you described definitely resonates with my conceptions of it. Because like you said, there is that sort of emoji version of it. A little grimacing face, like with a cigarette hanging out of its mouth and like a beret. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And of course, it's it's the beats and that kind of poetry and stuff is like has been very influential on me as a writer and just kind of as a creative person and as a journalist as well. And then also, I think similarly, I, you know, come from sort of an an upwardly mobile family of Eastern European immigrants as well. And I think a lot of 
my conception was then sort of formed in the experiences of seeing that notion of the American dream, like kind of slowly collapse over the course of like the nineties and the aughts. To me, it's, it's anti-corporate, it's anti-mainstream, but what's always tricky is like, it's, it's kind of slippery to define something by like what it's against rather than what it is. And I think that's kind of what we're finding ourselves grappling with today. Yeah, it's a great observation. That's true. For me, definitely the emoji version as passed down to me from like my parents, but also I think I associate it very much with place. Um, I grew up in New York City and was like the kind of kid who was like, oh, I, I identify with going to St. Mark's place. And so it was like going with a couple friends. We didn't fit in with the popular kids. And then we would, you know, go downtown where we met all of the weirdos, basically, even though like St. Mark's place is essentially a line of stores and is very like mixed up with capitalism. But going to these spaces that like, quote unquote, straight society didn't frequent. And then in college, it was similarly like going to underground venues, going to basement venues, noise music culture. And I guess it was like, for me, it's very tied to the idea of an underground that is outside. And what's been really complicated for me and why I think your piece resonates so much is that fast forward 15, 20 years or so, and I can't find that that physical space very much anymore. And it feels like it's just on the internet now, but then the internet, or at least the parts that I use most of the time as a journalist does not always feel like it has those spaces that are outside and that everybody has to be, as you kind of say in the piece, like performing within this extractive profit-based ecosystem all the time that there's no escape. Yeah, totally. I mean, I also think about, um, before coming to Berlin, also the reason why I came to Berlin is I worked in art journalism for like 10 years. And this question of the outside, of course, during a time when the art market was booming like more than ever, like the aughts, the art market was on a parallel track to Mars uh, with globalism. But there was this crisis mm -hmm. of the outside, right? Like the outside can't go outside anymore. And I appreciate that language, Emily, of the outside. And now it's like the outside, wherever you find it in the what we might call the clear net is under surveillance. When I say surveillance, I don't mean like NSA. I mean like peer surveillance. I feel like there's been this bleed from Twitter culture to IRL spaces. So like you're at a club and you say something, oh, is that a soundbite that's tweetable? Is that something mm -hmm. that's going to show up in somebody else's podcast? So there's this key surveillance that's happening. And where can the outside go outside, right? Uh, so this does feel like really, really central to this question of can a counterculture happen now in the culture sector? And also I think counterculture has always like inhabited media right? I mean, it's it's been written, it's been in visual art, it's been in films and performances. There's always kind of been a, a performative and like media aspect to it. But since the very nature of media itself has been distorted and cannibalized and taken over, it raises so many questions about like, what are we existing outside of and how is that different from the notion of outside before? Because the mode of communication fundamentally is, one could argue, kind of the same. Yeah. I mean, when you think about counter hegemony in the Gramsci sense, it is 
does share a parallel track with the radio, right? The idea of this mass address, this radio address to the masses, there's an idea of counter hegemony when you have this idea of a mass. And I wonder if we're actually in a really special moment because we're seeing the dissolution of those channels. And of course, with Trump and with a lot of like the hate that's been filling the airways in the past four years plus, this may seem negative, but maybe this is a great opportunity to create new kinds of spaces, uh, new kinds of outsides. I love that. Can you talk a little bit more about how you think the internet has complicated our understanding of the outside, the inside, or just counterculture itself over the past 10, 20 years and how it's gotten even to the point of making people think that it's not possible? Like, what do you think happened over the last decade that changed things? How do you see that trajectory? Sure. I mean, the last decade, things have been very visible because people have social media accounts that are tied to their real government names. And as we all know, like the way they're perceived professionally is tied to the number of Twitter followers and are their recent tweets funny and like, you know, constantly checking in on each other this way. So it's been literalized and certainly accelerated in the past 10 years. But I think we need to go back much further. Um, Fred Turner, uh, who is a professor of communications at Stanford, he wrote this book called From Cyberculture to Counterculture, Stuart Brand, The Whole Earth Network and the Rise of Digital Mm -hmm. Utopianism back in 2006. And it's a really excellent reference point for the genesis of all of this. And one of the interesting arguments that he makes is the idea of the internet is like, oh, it was this crazy thing, like Wired Magazine. There were like some kind of geeks or like entrepreneurs in the 80s. But basically, it was like all this cool cyberpunk stuff and like Mondo 2000. You know, it was even cooler than like Sonic Youth or something in the 90s if you knew about the internet. And then, oh, it all fell apart in like 2004 four, five, six, with the rise of aggregate platforms, professionalized platforms, of course, Facebook, you know, MySpace was still kind of cool, but by the time Facebook happened, it all collapsed. But it's kind of the wrong narrative or it's missing something where what Fred Turner's thesis is, is that we forget that the internet itself was made as a military industrial tool. It was DARPAnet, right? It was a research program to connect different parts of initially the United States. And that model was something that Stuart Brand and the whole Earth people, kind of smarter hippies, thought was really interesting and really promising. And they never really resisted it. They weren't like, oh, this is this military tool. It's bad. They were like, oh, this is military tool. This is really cool. We're going <laughs> to fold it in. Right. And then they had an entrepreneurial spirit from the beginning. The meta point I'm trying to make here is that the seeds of hegemony are always part of counterculture. And that's absolutely true with the internet. Stuart Brand still thinks that the way the internet turned out is great, right? Um, There was this idea that independent entrepreneurs who are tech-enabled could advance the future. And that was way better than a cabal of old men sitting around a table talking about nuclear weapons. I mean, in a way, he's not wrong. But we also know that like when the Musks and the Bezos and the Zuckerbergs are let loose, it's not necessarily utopia, right? I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about 
the concept that you posit in the piece of counterculture being hegemonic and then its shift to this more like rhizomatic structure. Right. So in part, one of the things that the internet has done is it's given us the ability to see different registers of scale. I mean, the piece starts with this line. If you Google image search counterculture, you get pictures of people who are now like in their 70s, but young at Woodstock or in a hippie zone. And they're very clear about who the hegemony is, what it looks like. They're unified in their idea of the attack surface. They think that if they just leverage a new left social justice, they can unmoor this hegemony and then the world will be a better place. And again, they're not wrong. I mean, like the things that they were fighting for are all really good, but they sort of won in a way. I mean, we don't have equality. Uh, We still have obviously a lot of work to do when it comes to racial equality, gender equality, et cetera. That said, The hegemony is so clearly not just that. It's been displaced. The people who run these companies, the Bezoses, the Musks, the Zuckerbergs, they feel as though they're doing good things. I mean, God, you know, Elon Musk on Clubhouse earlier this week chatting about GameStop being like, oh, yeah, I love Bitcoin and like the GameStop guys, they're great. Yeah, you know, I, I support that. Even though he's the richest guy in the world, he can't perceive himself as part of the hegemony. You know, and maybe that's just true. Maybe the hegemony is actually the algorithms, the networks, the processes. Maybe there is already this AI. I mean, not exactly sentient, but capitalism feels like a kind of AI. It doesn't feel like it's located in certain bodies that could be assassinated or could be dethroned, right? Totally. And it absorbs and capitalizes on dissent as well. A hundred percent. And and I think that's so important. And I think this past year where we've had these eruptions of dissent and no ability beyond those spaces of protest to share them, the place to share them has been social media. And that's been wonderful for social media. I am sure the server farms that support these social media platforms are also very happy. There's a lot of value being produced through dissent. And we are unable to see the edges of it. I mean, I think we all intuit it. I think we all know it. But we're unable to create a space in between that and our own organization. That's just like something that is on my mind a lot, just being on social media and seeing people who are avowed socialists participating in this daily game of generating free content for the platform. And I'm kind of just like, how are we so in this that we don't even see what's going on? Totally. Or like we don't even see what we are participating in, which runs obviously completely counter to our values, but we don't even talk about it. I don't know. I wonder, I wonder if I ask you all a question. As you've produced Culture Journalist, has your relationship to social media changed? When you are publishing for a mass media publication, uh, you have a requirement to tweet whatever people are saying so that you can, you know, increase the visibility. But now that you have a dedicated community and that's growing, how has your relationship to social media changed? I'd say that, well, it sort of also coincided with me using like a social media blocker so that I can only access it at <laughs> certain times a day. Um, so it has changed because of that. One thing I would say is the reason why we started it was partly that we felt that because of journalism becoming so intertwined with social media, 
we weren't really able to find a platform that would be interested in, not that we tried, but we were feeling like the platforms that we normally write for wouldn't be interested in publishing the sort of thing that we would want to talk about, if that makes sense. So we had to create like our own platform because I can just imagine if I were wanting to write an article about some of the things that we talk about, you know, an editor being like, ah, well, this doesn't play very well on Twitter or, you know, <laughs> you know, oh, that's too long and it's too detailed and it's and it's too academic or yeah, like, I don't know what headline really going to pop, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so that's like a positive, I'd say. Um However, I mean, this is maybe a rabbit hole and for another conversation entirely, but I do feel that the platform that we publish this on, Substack, is secretly a lot more dependent on those platforms than you would imagine. We create this podcast and the uh, rhetoric that is being used to attract us to a platform like Substack is, oh, forget about social media, you can exist outside of it. Um, you don't have to worry about that anymore. But I will say that there is this whole other aspect of having to do a lot of work to use those channels to promote it, which I'm iffy on whether I want to participate on. No, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, Andrea, I'm interested to hear what you have to say too. For the past two years, I've been freelance and I've had staff positions before then. And so like you were saying, it's been a lot more of just a requirement of those gigs to like have to participate in social media and promote articles and share other people's stuff. And it's been sort of a nice cleanse as a freelancer because <laughs> it's really just up to me, like for better or for worse, like how much I want to participate in that. And I've definitely stepped away from it more, but also kind of gotten in touch with more like what do I like about it? Like what do I see as the benefits to my work and otherwise? But then while we were talking about preparing for this second season of the podcast, we're like, all right, I guess we should probably make social media accounts for the pod, you know, um, like begrudgingly, because the discourse on social media platforms as it is today is it's not intuitive. Like I can I can do it like if you pay me, you know, but right. like, it's, it's not like intuitive to how we like to engage or disseminate our work or anything. It's made me realize like how it's not even up to us. We don't have a choice. We do have to use it in the past like we have been like okay what time should we send it out what time should we do these tweets you know right. we make sure our guests like share and engage it and it sucks but I mean there is a direct correlation between timing and platforms and shares and all that and like how listened to an episode is I think though the interesting thing is that we can now just treat it for what it is. It's an advertising platform and that's fine. We can also advertise on it without paying for the premium to like boost post or whatever. You know, when weird Twitter used to happen or when, you know, people used to actually use Facebook to like write to each other or write posts to on each other's walls or whatever, that felt like the worst period in a way because there was so much confusion over is this an intimate space? Is this a professional space? Is this a space of self-advertising? And unfortunately, the way it is, is that we do have to use these platforms to communicate what we're doing, but we can use them at an arm's distance and then retreat to what we've been calling dark forest spaces in order to speak more freely, to speak more creatively. I, I really am against pure spaces. I don't think they exist. I think they have always been a lie, whether it was the Bucky Domes of the 1960s or the like anarchist squats of the 90s in Berlin um, I, or the dark forest reddits or discords of today. I 
don't believe in the purity of these spaces, but I do think we can more or less understand social media to be a space of advertising. Do it shamelessly. You need to communicate what you're doing. Sometimes you have a nice exchange with a friend. That's great, but it's not the primary space for that. We're clear that there are Telegram groups, there's DMs, there's, it well, right now walks in the park with people who live close to you. But, you know, I, and I think we can separate those spaces and that will let us be a little less schizophrenic about the way we are online. I totally, totally hear that. I've definitely kind of set a guideline for myself that from now on, I'm really only going to use the sort of clear net spaces out of professional obligations, such as I have an article come out, okay, I'm going to tweet it, but otherwise I'm going to stay out of it, which is not probably not great for my uh, career or my online presence, but it is what it is. Uh, I wanted to ask you while we're talking about this idea of uh, dark forest spaces, what was the line of thinking that inspired you to create new models? And, you know, were you trying to create a space like this? What did you feel was missing on the internet when you decided to start it? Right. Um, Thanks for that question. Before we started New Models, I was working for a well-respected art journal in Berlin. It was a quarterly magazine. And the cycles of content production and discussion were really out of sync because it was quarterly. And the clearnet internet spaces were clearly an insufficient place to have these debates. They were very quickly going into flame wars because, of course, especially academics, you would think, have like read Gramsci or they understand the way that political discourse works. Um, they are trying to prove themselves in this space and it doesn't lead towards more solidarity. Of course, it leads towards more fractioning. And I thought, okay, this isn't working. I was working for this magazine in the years leading up to Trump and during his first year, and there was ultra high sensitivity about what could be written in the magazine because there was concern over what the blowback would be in the online space. And I thought this is a really bad formula for media that is trying to address the hard questions. So we thought, okay, we'll do a podcast uh, like yourselves because we can sound out problems in real time, we can check each other in real time, we can add context, nuance, and then we can speak to the audience that wants to hear from us. We not, aren't just broadcasting it live, you know, on, on the ClearNet space. Um, and we found that with that switch of format, that the responses were really great and really smart. And we wanted a space where we could talk to these people who were listening because they often knew more about subjects than we did. And uh, it happened incredibly organically. Uh, I didn't even really know too much about Discord. I wasn't on it before we started the New Models Discord. A friend who was more into gaming suggested it. And uh, then it really took on a life of its own. And we soon found that as much time was spent moderating that Discord space as was programming content for our podcast. And I was not expecting that at all. I was not thinking about the fact that media today is cultivating a community. I mean, of course, that's always the idea of a magazine, right? Cultivating mm-hmm. cultural resources for a group of people to use to like combat whatever is out there. But okay, so now media is building a community. It's not just a one-way like radio signal. It's really like a cybernetic process. And mm-hmm. that's that's been my experience with that dark forest space. And then we started thinking about it and theorizing it. Mm-hmm. Just for our listeners who haven't read the piece yet, could you just describe what the difference is between clear space and dark forest space? Sure. 
so the word dark forest actually comes from the Chinese writer Qin Qin Lu, who has a book by that name that is talking about outer space. And a few other people have written about it. But in our understanding of it, ClearNet is, it's sort of, do you remember that old diagram of like the dark net and the above water web that had the big iceberg that went into the ocean? And then it's like at the bottom, it's the Silk Road and then like selling people's credit card numbers and like <laughs> yeah. snuff films, right? Yeah. So it's like that, but like you can kind of imagine that same divide. So, okay, I, I, the definition is simply the dark net is everything that's on the internet that's not indexed. I can't Google something because its address is not an indexable address. I can type in a special address and I can arrive there if I'm using a special browser proxy that allows me to access these other URLs. That used to be like the dark net. But increasingly, the dark net isn't really the prime space. A lot of that activity has migrated to Telegram groups, to DM groups, to Discord servers, to Reddit threads, or to other kinds of social media. I mean, Parler is a little bit like dark net-y. Uh, and so dark net no longer really makes sense. But ClearNet remains the same. ClearNet is YouTube, it's Yahoo, Google, Bing, Amazon, Twitter, anything where you leave a trace and where you can be searched out. I like to think about it as a place where you have really high UV exposure and you maybe want some cover from that. So now mm -hmm. this idea of dark forest is where the dark net has sort of percolated up into this forest zone where things can grow in moss can grow like on rocks and like weird algae and mushrooms you know you just think of like a more biodiverse space so um that's that's what it is in a sense I think that, that was an excellent comparison thank you I guess there's one more thing I should add is that another difference between ClearNet and DarkNet spaces is that ClearNet spaces tend to be driven by algorithmic direction Whereas dark forest spaces, they seem to be driven by user direction. So you have to seek something out when you arrive in these dark forest spaces, say it's a Discord server or a Reddit page or whatever, you are looking at something that somebody else has foraged and brought to that space. Uh, so there's an intimacy to it. And it, it also is somehow less commercial. I love that. I kind of intuitively during my, you know, social media detox thing that's been going on over the past few months, I was like doing a lot of thinking about what is social media doing to my brain when I started blocking myself. And then I was like, oh, you know what the difference is now? Now I have to seek out information directly or get information, you know, have, have word of mouth recommendations from a friend. And then your article validated that this is a real difference <laughs> and I love it. And I see, I can see how on like the new models discord server, that's exactly kind of what's going on. Yeah. It's definitely changed my relationship to the news. So in the piece, Carly, you make a point of distinguishing between counterculture and subculture. So, for example, you posit that like Edward Snowden, QAnon might be more countercultural, but someone like Takashi 69 is more of a subcultural figure. 
that despite his colorful hair and face tattoos, for example, he's also very open about the fact that he places a huge onus on his success on social media. So, so how, do you, how do you define one versus the other? So counterculture is inherently political, whereas subculture feels not necessarily political. Counterculture is inherently irrecuperable. Like its whole point is to push up against whatever the dominant situation is, whereas subculture can withstand recuperation. And in fact, like, I mean, this used to not be the case in the 90s, right? Like you wouldn't want to be recuperated. You you wouldn't want to be sold mm. out. But now, as we see with Takashi, he's just such a good example because he wants more than anything to have validation through the network. Obviously, someone like Snowden doesn't want validation through the network. Well, I mean, of course that he does. I mean, you probably saw Citizen Four. I mean, he loved the camera. He so loved being a celebrity. It was so clear. Um, <laughs> but on a on a larger scope, it was clear that he did see that these platforms were really uh, were a hegemonic force that was not necessarily in our best interest. And something like QAnon is tricky. They're countercultural in the sense that they want to overthrow the status quo. They believe that the government is corrupt and that there are, you know, all these like child trafficking scenarios that they're imagining, which legitimate them and wanting to overthrow the government. Their fantasy is really focused on overthrowing what they perceive to be the hegemony. That said, like they also love social media and they get so pissed when they're blocked on social media and they love the celebrity of it. I mean, what we saw during this Capitol siege on January 6th was they love that stage. It was like they all got to be center stage in this mm -hmm. great real world, it like capital Washington DC edition. Yeah, they, they dressed up for it because they knew it was going right. to be like grammable. <laughs> Precisely, yeah. You know, and I think some people are always derisive about the way that QAnoners dress or MAGA people dress, but I actually think their fashion is so distinct and like actually somewhat difficult to copy in a believable way. I think they're incredibly conscious of media. So I think that they ultimately are more subcultural than they are countercultural. But I do think it's important to note that counterculture is not always good. I mean, in the way that we as more leftist oriented culture sector people might think, counterculture just means, I mean, if we think back to like Nazi culture, I mean, that was countercultural. It was countercultural to Weimar Republic. They were very much into coding themselves in a way that was counter to that establishment. And so I think we're sometimes too quick to think that counterculture is always progressive. It can also be regressive. Mm -hmm. And I, I think actually what we're at risk at right now is now with the Biden administration, thank God he's president and not Trump, but that said, their program is very much echoing the more like social justice side of the Democratic Party. And you can imagine that anyone who is resisting that under the guise of counterculturalism is going to be anti-woke. And you can imagine them pushing the pendulum way farther than it was you know, even before, under, yeah, under the guise of being countercultural or counterhegemonic. Yeah, and the, through Trump, the right has positioned itself as the anti-establishment side. Absolutely. They're really uh, digging into that rhetoric if you tune into Tucker Carlson. Oh, uh, my God. Totally, right? We were just talking about this. And then in the piece, you talk about the artist Josh Citarella 
and kind of Gen Z online political subcultures, I would personally like identify or associate them with TikTok and the uh, political compass, which I actually tried out myself. It has come out, come up on the podcast before. Um, And this idea of like the choose your own character, choose your future mode of identity play that you referenced Josh Citarella coming up with. What were you thinking in bringing this into the piece? Were you trying to explain why some Gen Z political subcultures are actually subcultures and not countercultures? Yeah, I know. I think it was less programmatic than that. I think I was just trying to show where the trajectory of this energy is going. I think Joshua Citarella's work is very interesting, and it's something that I look at. I'm far from Gen Z generationally, um, Mm -hmm. but I find it really fascinating. And it's interesting that it is nominally positioned within the political sphere, but when you start to look at the actual agendas, they're really more positioned in a fantasy space. I don't mean that in a pejorative way at all. I mean that literally like a gaming fantasy space, like one of extreme and oftentimes extremely interesting imagination. And I just wonder, you know, when I think back of being into bands in the 90s or 2000s, it was your music affiliation was your politics. And of course, Mm -hmm. it was still a little bit fantasy, like, you know, me growing up in Maryland, not particularly countercultural, I could still like a certain indie rock band from like, you know, K Records and imagine it was DIY and I was aligned with those politics. And I feel like now music is less political, um, not exclusively. And I think on a local level, it can be a lot more political. But in the age of Spotify and just the way that music works, it's it's quite different. Music is not necessarily the space of politics, whereas it had been in generations past. Perhaps gaming is a space of political orientation now. uh, And that game space then becomes like the extension of the political sphere. And it makes sense because you would imagine, although on the one hand, a lot of people in Gen Z are just like on TikTok, like totally showing their families, homes. I mean, I loved uh, Mm -hmm. Claudia Conway TikToking like from her kitchen with Kelly Ann, just like sitting there in her PJs. Um, they really are happy to put their lives online. It doesn't seem like it's something that that, that phases them, some, some in, in that generation. Um, but that at the same time, they seem like they intuit that anything you do online is going to be recuperated or going to be folded in or spread. It's not really a space of political activity. And so I think in the piece, I talk about it as being competitive futurist, uh, like mm-hmm. they're almost like competing for different visions of the future that like are better outcomes. So they're not dealing with the present and going to the voting ballot. They're thinking about what a future might look like. And that's how their politics are are organized. It's a stance that sort of implies a resignation. Exactly. I think so. I know that in Josh's thesis, when he first started looking at this, it was under the Obama administration, and he spoke of a disillusionment by younger people when they saw the media, pop culture, and government all aligned in a certain sense of, during the Obama administration, it was hope, and yet they saw no economic future, they saw no climate future that was viable. And so they 
came to distrust that system and just felt like it wasn't really worth intervening on that system. And so, you know, I wonder if that fantasy space isn't counter-hegemonic in its own way. Yeah, and and I guess, especially since that fantasy space is associated with the younger generation, they may feel that within the context that they have grown up in, it is counter-hegemonic, or that might be, for them, the place to turn to. Yeah. I think about, like, I, I'm obsessed with dark academia. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I really want to, like, do even more research into it, but kind of that to us, you know, millennials, we might look at it and say, oh, they're just dressing up in these costumes or, you know, and fetishizing this time and and it's kind of escapist and it's also performative on the internet, but Sometimes I read interviews with people from the subculture and they're like, oh, well, actually, this is our mode of dropping out and encouraging ourselves to stay off of the Internet or to celebrate the idea of staying off of the Internet, but also articulating it as well publicly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think these are all strategies of survival against this Mm -hmm. hegemony that is the clearnet internet. In my head, I think we really are off Web 2. I really think our relationship to Web 2 platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I mean, we still use them, of course, but I think more and more people are consciously not on them and also finding life elsewhere or using them in a particular professional way. And I think that this Web3 space, which I guess is like technically the word that they use for the worlds they're building on top of blockchain or Ethereum networks, um, that these will be self-governed spaces. There will be equity in the space among all of the members of the community. You won't have something like Patreon or Substack taking a cut. It will be collectively held. Um, I do wonder Mm -hmm. how that form of using the internet might interface with dark academia or other spaces which still use digital structures to communicate on some level, but are obviously not finding it as their primary locus. Dark academia are writing letters. That's so great. (laughs) They Instagram about writing letters, or I see them on like Reddit forums posting like, hey, I really want a pen pal. And then they use the platform to find a pen pal that they can then have kind of like offline communications with. That's so great. (laughs) What is dark academia actually? It's like college kids or, you know, young people. I guess anyone can adopt it. Like, I think I've always been a little inclined towards dark academia before it was ever a thing. But basically it is a subculture that is drawn to imagery associated with old prep school culture, like maybe 40s or 50s, even earlier than that. And they're very into images of libraries. (laughs) They read classic literature. They're very into, what is that book? Donna Tartt's book, the, what is it called? The Secret History. The Secret History, right, exactly. Yeah, and so there's also kind of like a queerness to it where they like this imagery or movies of people living within that sort of stodgy Oxbridge culture, but then having like secret queer romances. (laughs) And then also there's been like all this infighting within it where they, for good reason, critique each other for upholding like the Western canon of literature too much and and also for glamorizing studying too much. And (laughs) (laughs) 
it, it's a really interesting rabbit hole. I love it. It's really fascinating. I wonder what the cottage core dark academia Venn diagram crossover is. I think that dark academics are more into studying. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> So uh, just kind of circling back to Emily's last question, which is talking about your argument that Gen Z online political subcultures, like even ones with a clear social justice or anti-capitalist bent, aren't countercultural per se, because they're still fully embedded, you know, in the extractive logic of for-profit social media platforms. But I'm wondering, how do you square that with movements that have their origins in URL spaces like, you know, BLM or Me Too, which are, you know, working to counter culturally ingrained systems of oppression that predate the internet. Yeah, totally. I mean, first of all, all these activities are good and can also be, I mean, the internet can still organize for good, right? It's not like it's just a purely negative space and every single aspect of it is negative. And, you know, one of the things that was so great during the BLM protest was that the internet was used to share information, to share images. I think for a lot of people, while there were a lot of horrific and sad things that were being shared, there was also a lot of uplifting imagery and uplifting messages. A lot of people connected during that time, thanks to the internet. I think that when it comes to Me Too, Me Too is interesting because my take on that is, yes, like a, a lot of these institutions needed to purge bad actors or needed to be freed of people who had been abusive for a long time. But those institutions were also in a place to fall when that happened. So Me Too, actually, I feel like I'm contradicting myself here, but the Me Too hashtag in a way ended up being counter-hegemonic in the sense that it felled a lot of institutions at a time when they were so ready to fall. It was just mm -hmm. the right confluence. I think that those hashtags can very quickly become oppressive and that it's up to us to give the benefit of the doubt and to be conscious that we're not using that space to gain points on other people. I mean, I think the BLM protests, the hard part is that I think a lot of people did feel affected by it. They felt saddened by it. They wanted to express solidarity, but they felt like the internet was this machine that just scrambled every single intention and allowed people to read things disingenuously. So it became this very toxic space. But the movements themselves are great. And I think it's up to all of us, especially during these moments of high emotional intensity, to really be generous to each other and to not try to police each other, to assume the benefit of the doubt, and to do the hard work of policing on the ground, in person, with bodies, letter write, maybe dark academia like has something going there, put it in paper, put mm -hmm. it in a physical form, meet somebody face to face, get involved in your local government, show up at those meetings. Those are spaces where something can be done. Which actually, that brings me to our last question, which is, you know, throughout all this, you're positing that counterculture still exists. We just are not going to find it on the clear space internet. What do you think counterculture might look like in the future, you know, say 10 or 20 years from now? Yeah, that is a really great question. And I imagine that some of these Gen Z people inventing worlds have a clearer picture of that than I do. I think in a practical sense that it will probably involve Web3. It will probably involve forms of value or equity that are controlled and aggregated by individual groups. This might be a space of empowerment. It's way too late in this podcast to get into GameStop. Um, <laughs> but 
work. <laughs> yeah. But collectively held value could be a space where people can build up the financial resources to actually create spaces. We can't just leverage hegemony and suddenly we're all free. I mean, then we just have chaos, but we can create spaces like dark forest spaces or pockets where there's a good UV shield. Clubs in the shadows. I love that term, a club in the shadow. I think we will find spaces where we can push back the pressures of extraction and at least in our formation, capitalism through perhaps the internet, perhaps this web three space of the internet. That and also, I mean, I hate to say like back to the land, but I hope that like in 20, 30 years, I just have a farm somewhere, (laughs) a really shitty internet connection. The reality is I'll probably have a Starlink, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Carly Vesta, thank you so much for coming on The Culture Journalist. It's been awesome speaking with you. Thank you, Emily and Andrea. This was uh, really fun and so great to speak to two super smart women. I really a joy. That's it for our show. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Andrea Dominic, and Emily Friedlander. Our theme music is composed by Mark Donica. For links and further reading from today's episode, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. If you like what you heard today, take a second to leave a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism. 